If I were to ask a question, I, I thought about having you raise hands, but you know what? I, I just hate that when people do that to you. So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to think about something. I would venture a guess that almost every single person sitting here enjoys living in the Black Hills. You know, I see all kinds of nods. This is just a great place. And we have all kinds of reasons why we love living here. And if, we, if I was to, to ask you and, and get feedback, we'd come up with things like the climate, for those of us from Minnesota, the lack of mosquitoes, um, the lack of humidity, the aesthetics, the ability to be out in the woods. There's just a myriad of things that we enjoy by living here and what we really take stock in. Okay, we have several million visitors that come here a year. When they go back home, what do they tell people about the Black Hills? Something which I doubt any of us would have brought to the forefront when we were listing what it is we like about the Black Hills. What do they talk about? They say, well, I went to Mount Rushmore. You know, we live, what, 10 miles from Mount Rushmore? I probably see it once a year. I don't necessarily go in, but I see. So that which people from the outside and, and, and kind of a cursory look at the Black Hills see as, oh, hey, that's the hallmark of the Black Hills. That's not what most of us view as the greatest advantage of the Black Hills. So we have a, a, a different perspective, and we've taken something away different from the experience by virtue of living here rather than being a visitor. The passage we're going to look at today contains one of the most popular two verses within conservative Protestant evangelicalism, and that is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. A vast majority of you, if I asked you to quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, could quote it to me. But my contention is that Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a little bit like Mount Rushmore. Okay? It's what, it's what people looking from the outside see. But I want us to look at this passage and think about the entire passage rather than just focusing on 2, 8, and 9. So let's read it again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, now any of you who know me know two of my favorite words and most important words in Scripture. We're going to see it several times today. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you are familiar with Ephesians, you're going to know that later on in the chapter and beyond that, um, he explains that both Jews and Gentiles are equal under the new covenant. And, and, and so that's the thrust of, of, of what is, gonna, is happening here. And this pericope leads us into that. But that's the portion of this passage that I want us to look at, that, that equal, which is why the, the bulletin says that the title for the sermon is that we're all the same. And I want you to think about some things this morning. You know, sometimes we come to church and we hear a message and it's, it's very nice and we learn from it, but it doesn't necessarily cause us to think deeply about what the passage says and what the message is. So I'm going to kind of challenge you this morning. I'd like you to think deeply about the truths that we're going to mention. I should give a little bit of a, a disclaimer, I suppose. My son is currently preaching through Ephesians, and I listened to his, his two sermons on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 uh, about a month ago, and I, I really appreciated where he went with it and where he was headed. But I thought, you know, there's a different approach to this pericope that, that I would take if I were looking at it. So um, I, I do want you to think, really think about what this passage says. If we look at uh, the first couple Verses. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, in the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." Who were you before Christ? What were you like before Christ? Now, that is different for many of us. For me, 
I got saved when I was about eight years old. So from a fairly young age, I had the opportunity to be a believer. Wayne's not here today, but Wayne's on the other end of that spectrum. Wayne got saved when he was 52 years old. He had 51 years of unregenerate life versus my seven. Kyle was 16. So he's a, he's a teenager, having gone through some of those early teenage years before he gets saved. Lisa was 36. So she's somewhere between Kyle and Wayne. So we all came at different ages, but at age seven, at age 15, for Wayne at age 51, for Lisa at age 35, we were all the same. There was no different difference from the divine perspective on who we were. We were different ages, but we were all the same. And we use a word to describe that. We use several words, as a matter of fact, but one of them is lost. I was just as lost at seven as Wayne was at 51. I was seen by the Father exactly the same as Wayne was seen. The passage goes on and it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that mean? You know, I was a seven-year-old kid running around being a smart aleck. Wayne was a 51-year-old businessman running around in what he would tell you a fairly debauched life. So we weren't, from the world's perspective, dead. But Scripture tells us that from God's perspective, we were dead. Now, how dead were we? You know, is this like Princess Bride, where we're just kind of mostly dead? That's not what it tells us. It tells us that we are, were, at that point in time, absolutely and completely dead relative to eternity. It also tells us that we were children of wrath, and that's God's wrath, and we're all living under that wrath in those years before we get saved. So we're also told we're like the rest of the world because the rest of the world is dead and are children of wrath. I think it's pretty easy to see that before regeneration, we are all exactly the same. Doesn't matter what we've done. 
It doesn't matter what we've not done. It doesn't matter the family that we came from. It doesn't matter the church that we went to or didn't go to. But we were absolutely dead relative to the God of the universe. And then as we look at verse 4, and as I've already alluded to, you know, two of my favorite words in Scripture, because what comes after these two words is always genuinely significant. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For some of us, that uh, makes us think of Romans 5. And in Romans 5, it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, those are words again, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While we were enemies. So in addition to being dead, in addition to being children of wrath, Scripture tells us that we were enemies of his, which once again makes us all the same before that regeneration in our heart that God brings about. Then it says that we, by grace, were raised and seated, not by works. Well, puts us all in the same boat again. He raised us. He seated us in the heavenlies. It was because of nothing we had done. It says it's not by our works. So we are all the recipients of that same grace mediated, how? By Christ's death on the cross. So none of us can take any credit for any aspect of it, which once again puts us all in the same boat. And why did he do it? Did he do it just so that we could sit together on Sunday morning and enjoy each other's fellowship? Did he do it strictly for eternity? So that, uh, oh yeah, when this world is done, we can, we can live forever with God. Well, that's not what the passage says. It says he did it, and we were created for good works. 
So what that means is that each and every one of us was created for good works. That's really what this passage is heading towards, is that he regenerated us so that he might be seen in the good works that we do. But what is rather interesting is he didn't create us all for the same works. I look around the congregation here, we have a huge, wide variety of people. People who interact with society in a different way. People who interact in the church and in their family in a different way. So he didn't create us all so that we were all going to be one stamped out single entity. But he did create all of us for good works. And where we see those works play out most uh, apparently is here within the body. Now, Nate, in his Sunday school or Bible hour lesson several weeks ago, he talked about the body being the glory of God, the church being the glory of God. So he created us for good works so that the body would glorify him through what it does. That is a significant, significant thing. That means that how we function and what we do is, as a body, is what brings glory to God. If we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to pick a few verses out of one area here, starting in, in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And If the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would, make, would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffer, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you 
are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we, as members of Southern Hills Bible Church, are all different parts of the body of Southern Hills Bible Church. We're certainly not all the same part. The passage obviously shows us that. But, but we have different functions, different amounts of, of uh, notoriety or, or, or visual things. You know, I, as an elder here, I have an opportunity to address the body on a more regular basis than some people would. But that only makes me, makes you, a different part of the body. It says in that passage that the, in the body there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So though we are vastly and completely different parts of the body, we're all the same. Now, got to have a little disclaimer here, okay? Um, if Wayne were here, he'd, he'd be fidgeting in his seat right now. This is not a passage that is talking about egalitarianism. Um, uh, two opposing views within Christianity are egalitarianism and complementarianism. Egalitarianism says all people are exactly the same and as a result have the opportunity to do exactly the same ministry. That is what leads to female elders and female pastors. Our church takes what is called a complementarian view. Complementarianism says we are all the same before the Father, but he has given us different roles, and those roles are to complement each other. Um, hopefully Barbara and I are an example of that, in that... It's a really good thing God gave me the wife that he did because otherwise I could be really irritating to people. Okay? I'm aware of that. She'll sometimes do it. I remember a specific circumstance where we were in a church that certainly didn't believe what we did, but we were there because an employee of ours was um, having their baby baptized. And we went, and I won't go into the whole story, but essentially at one point, the Lutheran pastor said, aren't you glad your parents had you baptized so you were never spiritually lost? And here's what happens. This has happened a lot of times in our life, but a hand comes down on my knee, and she looks at me, and she just shakes her head. <laughs> And I knew what she was telling me is, Dan, 
My complimentary role in this situation is to keep you from standing up and making a scene. So that's a small portion of complementarianism, but it's certainly one of the experiences that stands out in our life uh, where God gave me exactly the right wife. But in having these different parts of the body, we have different functions as well. Kyle's primary, one of Kyle's primary functions is teaching us on Sunday mornings. God has gifted him there, has given him the education and the ability to convey as the teaching elder God's truths to us. There's a group of us that are elders. God has given us the responsibility for the spiritual leading of the church. We have two deacons. God has given them the responsibility in their function to minister to the needs of the body. We have people who sing. We have people who play. We have people who clean. We have people who teach. There's all kinds of different functions that we, as different parts of the body, have. But according to the passage, we all share the same inheritance. And later on in Ephesians, in chapter 4, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint by which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when we as individual parts are functioning properly within this body, and if we're doing it properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then in Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let, having gifts according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If, ser, in, if service, in serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, 
to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we all have different areas within the church that we function. But the purpose is for that building up. Notice what it says. It says, it makes the body grow so it builds itself up with love. Gifts are an interesting thing, and, and, and we can't necessarily equate spiritual gifts and, and physical gifts the same, but there are some similarities. If Barbara gives me a gift, what am I supposed to do with that gift? I'm supposed to enjoy it. She gave it to me for my benefit, for my enjoyment, for my edification. But how about with spiritual gifts? If God gives me a gift, how am I supposed to use that? For Dan? No. For the body. He gives us those gifts Gifts, as that passage talks about how we would use our gifts, he gives us those gifts so that we can minister to those around us and we can help the body to grow. So I have a couple questions for you this morning. How are we doing in helping the body grow? How are you doing in helping the body grow? How is Dan doing in helping the body grow? How are the leaders within our church doing in helping the body grow? That's why God gifted us. He gifted us so that we might use those gifts to help the body grow. And the other thing is, how are we doing in building the body up in love? Are we encouraging each other? Are we showing love to the people in the body who are vastly different than us? You know, that's, that's one of the parts about having a body with lots of different parts. It didn't, it, some of us are really, I mean, you, if you were to look at it from an outside standpoint, would say it's almost oil and water, where, where we don't share the same interests, we don't approach things the same way, but it doesn't change the fact that we are responsible to use those gifts to build the body up in love. So here's really the heart of the matter. And a question which I think we all need to ask ourselves, and that is, is what I am doing helping the body grow? Is what I am doing 
helping the body to be built up in love. That's a sobering two questions. Because it means every single aspect of our lives has to be judged by is what I'm doing helping the body grow? Is what I'm doing building up the body in love? That means every comment that I make. That means every action that I have. It means every interaction that I have with each one of you. And the same is true for you. We need to look at all of those things and say, is this accomplishing what God has given me as a part of the body to do in the good works that he ordained ahead of time that I would do. But now we're going to go back to Mount Rushmore, okay? And we're going to look at the reason why people see the Mount Rushmore of the passage to be verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So he made us different parts of the body. He gave us different gifts to use for the body. But he also wants us to absolutely remember that by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Folks, we are all the same. In exactly the same way that we were the same before regeneration and were lost and dead, we are now the same by virtue of the fact that under the new covenant, we are members of his body and we are members of this body. And our responsibility is to live out those good works and to realize that even those good works come by grace, not by our own doing. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Father, thank you for this church, for the fact that you have taken a ragtag group of people in tiny little Custer, South Dakota and made us a body. Father, may you grant us the ability and the desire to use the gifts that you have given us to build up this body in love so that we may glorify you 
in every way, in everything we do. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.